Um, this is not a sales pitch for my book, I promise you. Uh, I'm, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the process of coming to write it. So it's, I don't want to talk exactly about what's in it because either you'll be interested or you won't. Um, and the book starts with this, really. I've worked my way through an awful lot of these rosary beads, um, usually because I leave them on trains or in church pews or something or they get pinched when I'm the vicar of somewhere or other. This is where my journey began because when I was a student, um, I was looking for a way to pray and discovered the rosary. And of course, I'm Church of England. We don't do that sort of thing. But uh, actually, as I came to find, we can. And so I've spent uh, my time ever since I was a student using this as a form of meditation. And out of that meditation on the traditional mysteries has come a book on the Sorrowful Mysteries. SPCK wouldn't let me call it Sorrowful Mysteries. They thought it was too downbeat for Holy Week, so it's called Passionate Christianity. And then I wrote one on the Joyful Mysteries, which were the happiest ones. I'm currently in the process of writing one uh, on the resurrection called Glorious Mysteries. And in each case, I take five key moments in the Gospel story and talk about how they relate to ordinary living. Now, I know how hard this is because like all of you, like Elizabeth here, I've tried to do it. And it's really difficult to pray the story of the Passion or to pray the life of Christ. How do we actually do it? We have no models for this. Unless we went to really top-notch confirmation classes, how do we learn to pray? If we go to church, if we come to St Paul's Cathedral, we learn to pray by looking at the way it's done in church. But that's designed for us to pray together. We read prayers aloud, we say them together. We listen while the priest says them on our behalf. If we say the Sursum Corda in the Eucharistic prayer, the priest is giving us permission to, for him to go ahead. So, how do we actually pray the life of Christ in our own personal devotions? That is the problem I started with. I want to pray better and I don't know how to do it and nobody is teaching me how to pray by myself. So I picked up these beads, I got a little leaflet, you know, the kind with pious sentiments that says the family that prays together stays together, and off I went. I think that might be true, actually, but it sounded, when I was a student, that was a stage too far, I wasn't quite ready for that. And I started thinking about the passion, and everything that I've reflected on in the passion has come out of sitting in churches with my eyes shut, counting my way through these beads, and focusing on gospel stories. And sometimes that focusing has been very emotional. I've thought about what it felt like to hear the thunk of the nails going through the two bones in Jesus' arm as he was nailed to the cross. I've tried to be there and hear that sound. That's very emotional, very direct. And I've also thought about the so what question. What does this do to me that that happened to that man so long ago? How do I make the connection between the historical events of nearly 2,000 years ago and me myself here today? So in my prayers, I've, I've wandered wildly and widely over all the different facets of the passion. And I, I, when I thought about it for the book, you know, you, you can't just um, wander about at will. You have to focus it down to some argument or nobody's going to read it. They won't get through it. And I thought that basically there are three things I need to think about. There's the history, there's the theology, and there's the spirituality. Now, these are not just three invented categories. They're really quite important. My background as an academic is in classics. I taught Greek and Latin literature with particular reference to ancient historical writings. That's what I'm interested in. So history is really important for me. I do care, and so should you, about whether any of this stuff we read in the Gospels actually happened.
Okay? I think we need to be realistic about the limits of what we can know, given the documents we've got, but it matters whether things happened or whether they didn't. So that's the history. Then there's the theology. That's where we sit there. We look at the events as they're described to us and the history of how the church has dealt with them. We ask ourselves, what does it mean? Theology is reasoned discourse about God. So we look, for example, at the story of the Passion and we ask ourselves, what does that mean about God? What does it tell us about how we relate to God and what he thinks about us? What does it tell us about who Jesus was? You know, the great divide, was he a very, very good man or was he God incarnate? So that's history. Did it happen? Theology, what does it mean? And then the third category, which is what I'm particularly involved with in this talk and in this book. Now, this is me not speaking as a priest, not speaking as a professional religious person, but as a Christian, like all of us. Somebody who has to pray the gospel and make it their own. And it's that spirituality that I think is more important than anything else I do, because I can't do the other stuff. I'm best qualified for the history, I'm paid to do the theology, and what I do most of is the spirituality, the actual praying, where I sit in my chapel in Cambridge morning and evening, sometimes with students and sometimes without, sometimes with a choir, sometimes without, and I try to pray as a Christian. And so I want to start, um, I'm quite a long way in for saying I want to start, but my book starts with a poem. I'm not going to read it all to you. I'm just going to explain what it is in terms of a poem that I know that all of you will know, a sort of poem, a sort of prayer. And that's the Serum Primer. You all know it, God be in my head and in my understanding. And when I first prayed that prayer, I found it extremely difficult to remember because um, all the phrases are very similar until the penny dropped that the person who wrote the prayer starts at the top and works their way down. God be in my head and in my understanding, in my eyes and in my looking, in my mouth and in my speaking, in my heart and in my thinking. God be at mine end and at my departing. And the prayer I began the book Passionate Christianity with is a prayer in which you look at the crucifix, and I often do when I'm praying the rosary because I have it here. It's my visual aid, you see. I'm very up-to-date and modern. I can't quite do an OHP. I'm not ready for that. But I can do a visual aid, and here it is. It's my crucifix. And I go through the things that I see as I look on the wounded Christ. And this is not my prayer. This is somebody else's, and I'm very grateful for it. We look at the wounded feet of Christ and we say, direct our path aright. Jesus, by thy nailed hands, move ours to deeds of love. Jesus, by thy pierced side, cleanse our desires, because this is the place where we feel and think things. Jesus, by thy crown of thorns, think of those th thorns puncturing the skin, annihilate our pride. The one that really gets to me every time, because I'm a person who's rather prone to hasty speaking, is Jesus, by thy parched lips, curb our cruel speech. And when I come to that, I feel that I'm ready to pray the five sorrowful mysteries. What I'm really looking for, although I pray in stillness and often in solitude and silence, what I'm looking for is a prayer that involves not just my head, but my whole body in what I do. I believe that we use the body in prayer. We use our eyes, our, we use our hands, we use our knees. We ought to be on them a lot more often than we are in the Church of England nowadays. We need whole body prayer, especially to do the sorrowful mysteries. Because if you're an Anglican and you're sitting there thinking, well, we don't do this sort of thing, we don't pray the Ave Maria and all the rest of it, well, maybe you don't. 
but the prayer itself is still valuable, and particularly this bit of the Rosary Mysteries, because this is the pit where there's no talk about Mary or anything controversial that some Anglicans find difficult. You simply focus on those five moments in the Passion of Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he made his choice whether to go forward or whether to run away, and he was given chances to run away. And then when he was finally arrested and he was scourged, what does it mean to imagine your Lord and Saviour, to picture him in your mind's eye, to be part of the scene, to imagine him being beaten and hurt? The crowning with thorns, you picture him in the Praetorium, the soldiers' headquarters, where he was naked and bound, and where they put a purple robe on him and a reed for a scepter in his hand and jammed a crown of thorns on his head. What does that mean and how does it feel to pray it? We ought to be feeling these things in our own bodies, even as we tell our way through the beads of the rosary. You don't have to do it with this. I do this as a prayer because it gives me a guaranteed 15 minutes of pure attention on the passion of Christ. And I think that's something all of us could do with. This book started as Lent lectures at Norwich Cathedral, a long way away, not quite so grand as this cathedral here, but a special place. I spoke in five Lent lectures there about the things that I'm talking to you about. And in the process of doing so, I came to understand that what lies at the heart of the rosary mysteries called the sorrowful mysteries, the ones where we meditate on the passion, what lies at the heart of them is a proper understanding of how the passion of Jesus Christ makes a difference to us. This is the question that when I was a parish priest in ministry in the Diocese of Ely, I had a, a regular ministry to children both in local schools and they'd come and the cubs and scouts would come and the guides would come and look around the church. And the question that they always asked me was, why did Jesus have to die? We got asked it many times and I struggled for answers and I thought, well, I need to find the answer to this. So I started to look at the theology and how it relates to the prayer of the Sorrowful Mysteries. Why did Jesus have to die? What you first come up against, or very likely come up against, is a teaching which isn't often labelled like this, but I'm going to tell you the proper word for it. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. Now, this is a very common doctrine among Reformed churches, Protestant churches, and it's very complex, in, like all doctrines, like all theology, when you get into it, you spend endless time refining your terminology and tweaking your definitions. What it basically means is that God's justice demanded that somebody be punished for the sinfulness of humankind, and that we deserved that punishment, but Jesus took it upon him. That's a, an understanding of the atonement theory which we have to contend with because it's what a lot of people are taught and what they learn. How on earth are we supposed to meditate on, to pray something which imagines God punishing his own son for things that we've done? So I want us to think about how we understand the doctrine of what's called atonement You'll often hear in church, and this annoys me as a classicist who does Greek and Latin, um, I'm interested in the origins of words. You'll often hear people giving you a false etymology. They'll talk about remembering, being about putting the thing parts back together, remembering, which is a terrible, terrible false etymology. But there is an etymology that you'll hear preached, which is absolutely true. Atonement means at one moment. I've looked it up in the OED, and it begins with English theology, putting back together what was taken apart at the fall. 
Atonement theory is at the heart of the... Imagine the cross standing there, and there is the intersection. Right in the middle is the point at which Jesus is crucified, in which we are at one. We are made one again with God. And that's what we have to enter into when we pray these mysteries. Now, I don't really mind how you do it. I'm perfectly happy praying Ave Maria's around a set of rosary beads. You don't have to do it that way. I do it because it means that I get this guaranteed amount of attention because I've got a very short attention span in prayer. I get distracted easily. I find I'm thinking about something else easily. And how do I stop myself doing that? Because my lips... My vocal prayer is saying something else. It could be Kyrie eleison, it could be Agnus Dei, something like that. I happen to say Ave Maria. And I've got that time while I say those vocal prayers to be picturing a scene from the Gospels. That's what I'd encourage you to explore doing. Gives me those three minutes. Three minutes on five of the most important things that happened in the Passion of Christ. I'm just going to take you quickly through the things that come back to me over and over again as I pray those sorrowful mysteries. And I said to you, the first is Gethsemane. When I pray Gethsemane, when I sit there in my chapel or the church where I'm visiting and saying the rosary, I've prayed the rosary here while I've been waiting for trustees meetings and things in the side <laughs> chapel, you don't have to pay to get in, you know the one. I've been in there, prayed the rosary for friends, for family, for myself, and I've pictured Jesus in Gethsemane. I imagine those disciples a little way away and I see Jesus kneeling in prayers, rather as El, Gre El Greco painted him, I'm sure you know that painting, The Agony in the Garden. And I ask myself, what is that agony? What is the content, the essence of the trauma that Jesus undergoes? And the answer comes back to me again and again, and I see myself in him, and I see him and myself in this. It could all have been different. It didn't have to be the way it turned out to be. We are not fatalists. As Christians, we do not believe that there was only one way that history could go and that we are pieces on a chessboard that God moves around. Jesus was a human being, fully human, and he had a fully human choice to walk away. And yet he chose to walk towards it. And when I ask myself in prayer the further question, why did he do that? The answer comes back because the worst torment is to know what's right and to walk away and do the wrong thing. And I believe that all of us have experienced the guilt and the shame and the regret that comes with walking away from something we knew to be right, but we were too frightened to follow the proper course. So for me, the sorrowful mysteries begin there in Gethsemane with that terrible choice between wrong and wrong. That, if you're interested in Greek tragedy, is what tragic really means. It's where you see a character, a person of stature, and beauty and importance put in an impossible position where they cannot choose a right outcome. They can only choose between pain and pain. And that's what Jesus faces. Now, when I come to the second of the sorrowful mysteries, the scourging, I have to tell you that I find this extremely difficult. Uh, I began in, when I came to my book describing this in terms of something I'd seen in a film by Mel Gibson. I don't know if any of you have seen The Passion of the Christ. And if you watch it, you will see a scene in which Jesus is tied to the pillar and scourged by some Roman soldiers. Not ordinary blokes, not soldiers like I know soldiers to be. I wrote my doctorate on Caesar's Gallic War, so I'm very interested in how soldiers are depicted in literature and in film. And there are these soldiers enjoying hurting Jesus. They really put their backs into it. And as the film goes on, 
their faces become more and more demonic. And I watched that film at the pictures and my heart said, and my mind still says, no, that is not how it must have been. Because I know that the Roman soldiers who inflicted that punishment would have been decent, ordinary people like all of us. People who were doing a job and their job happened to be the totally routine business of scourging prisoners who were sentenced to death and they just got on with it. And that is the evil of the second sorrowful mystery. When I was trying to explain how that works in human psychology, it drew me on into something I'd heard of very vaguely, and I expect many of you have, and I had to go and find out more, something called the Milgram experiment. Can I just ask, has anybody here got any experience of it? Yeah, I thought one or two people would. Mm. This was an experiment, a social psychology experiment, that began in 1961. You'll correct me later if I got my dates wrong. And it was much later published in the 70s um, as a, a study called Obedience to Authority, an Experimental View. And it took the form of a, a fake experiment where people were invited to take part in what they thought was an experiment into learning and teaching. But actually, the people who thought that they were taking part were themselves the guinea pigs. And they were shown somebody who was supposed to be learning something, given a button to press, which said there was a series of buttons with increasing voltages, and they were asked to give electric shocks to see somebody if they got the answer to the question wrong. And as the questions went on, they were asked to give more and more dangerous voltages to the point where they were asked to inflict in voltages which would have been fatal. And what Milgram was really interested in was why do people do things which are callous and brutal just because they're told to do so by somebody in a position of authority? And as he went through these experiments, he discovered what well, various things, and it was all a bit technical for me, but I picked up the main gist of it, that about 60% of the people he tested, and this has been repeated with the same results, 60% of people are prepared to inflict on another human being a voltage which they are told clearly, and they see somebody who looks like they're in agony, actually an actor. It's fatal. It would kill somebody, and they'll do it if they're told to by a figure in authority. 60%, two-thirds nearly. The more educated the guinea pigs were, the less likely they were to do it without questioning. I, I read the transcript of a, um, a man who sounded like he came from the southern states of the USA, who got all the way to the very dangerous and nearly fatal voltages and then started to say, well, just a minute, I don't want to do this. And you go through the testers, they have four different levels of challenge. They're supposed to say, the experiment must continue. You, the experiment requires you to continue, you must go on. And this man got to the fourth response. He said, I'm an American. We believe in freedom. We don't do this to people. I'm not going to go on. And he left, and he was terribly upset and angry. And that, of course, is what we think of as the right response. That's the response we all think we would give if told to torture somebody. But in fact, two-thirds of us would do nothing of the kind. Two-thirds of us would carry on pressing those buttons because somebody told us to. And I think it's that kind of routine, humdrum, mundane, unthinking evil that crucified Jesus. It's not extraordinary evil, it's ordinary evil. It's the kind of evil that lies in the hearts of all of us if we're not incredibly careful. I don't want to say more about that now, partly because I'm not an, ex an expert in these things, and for all I know there are people here in the audience who are much more expert than I am, and I hope you'll make yourselves known to us shortly. I want to move on very briefly to the, the third 
of the Sorrowful Mysteries, the crowning with thorns. And this is the one that, for me, I know this is a strange thing to say when the crucifixion's around the corner, but the crowning with thorns is the most painful, and partly because of the way I see it when I pray it. You imagine me again in my chapel, on my own, in the silence, very still, my eyes shut, carefully counting my way through the prayers. And what I see is a group of soldiers, tormenting a naked, bound and helpless man. And particularly, somebody must have plaited that crown of thorns. If you ever gardened with thorny bushes and tried to prune them, you'll know how incredibly hard it is even just to pick up a branch. And they must have woven it into a crown at pain to themselves in order to hurt him and pushed it down on his head to inflict pain. That goes beyond the Milgram experiment. That seems to me that that is an expression of the kind of cruelty which, again, most of us are capable of if we have enough contempt for the person that we're hurting. Now, that really is terrifying. Walking the way of the cross, I'm conscious I'm short of time. Perhaps I should say less about this. It was at the point of walking the way of the cross that I realised I had to deal in my book with what I told you about earlier, penal substitutionary atonement, because I don't believe that God, God's justice demands that we should be punished or that on our behalf Jesus should be tortured to death. Even if he chose it, even if he chose that on our behalf, that is not justice to punish one person for another's sin, and I don't believe it. But where does that leave me? If I don't think that the meaning of the cross is in penal substitutionary atonement, what have I got to offer? It's a long and difficult subject, but I'll tell you what my prayers led me to. They led me to words of St. Paul. Not everybody's favourite. We heard about St. Augustine at the Mass this morning, and he's not everybody's favourite either, but I think he's an absolute theological star, and you can never read too much St. Augustine. But it was Paul who gave me the answer I was looking for, because it's Paul who talks about us in our baptism being buried with Christ and rising again. And this is where atonement and resurrection get bound together. We are not being released from our punishment. Jesus is not being punished on our behalf. We die with him in the crucifixion so that we may rise again as God's children and God's people. We can never again, after our baptism as Christians, we can never again claim ignorance as an excuse for wrongdoing. There's one thing Christianity is really good at. It's making people aware of their sins, not to obsess about them, but to deal with them. I've met many people who are believers in penal substitution, for whom life is one long anxiety-driven search for peace because they believe that their sins caused God to hurt Jesus. And because they love Jesus, that is an eternal torment to them. I don't believe that's how it works. I don't believe God does things like that to people that he loves. Now, when I reach the crucifixion in my prayers, I've come to a bit of a stopping point, and I don't know how this works for you, but for me the problem is that when I come to the cross and I try to picture myself as part of the scene, I see the cross before me. I can imagine the two other crosses of the thieves at either side. But what I can never see, and never have been able to see in my prayers, is the face of Jesus. It's the only thing I can't imagine in prayer, and I don't know why, but it never comes to me. If you're lucky enough to be blessed with that vision, then um, I'll try not to say I envy you, but it's true, I do. I don't see that. What I often see when I pray 
is myself walking to the foot of the cross. I don't just see it, I feel it. It is me doing it. And I kneel there and I sit there and I'm content to rest in its shade, not understanding everything that the cross means. Sure that my very simplistic explanation of what atonement means to me is not good enough for God, but it's my best effort. You know, so often we feel if only we tried a bit harder, we'd be better Christians, we'd be better theologians or historians, we'd be more spiritual. But good enough is good enough. And as long as we try, God is content for us to continue doing so. In the crucifixion, we reach the limits of our imagination. I know this. I turn to St. Paul again, and I think of something which I lecture on in Cambridge as it happens, something which the first great theologian of the church, Irenaeus, picked straight out of St. Paul. Of all the things he could have chosen, he went straight to Christ as second Adam. He said, look, look here what we found in Paul. Christ is a second Adam. And what Irenaeus calls this is recapitulation, as if history has come, not come full circle, that's not the right image, because we don't believe in circular history. We believe in history going in a direction, we believe in providence. But as if Christ has assumed everything that human history was from the person of Adam onwards and transformed it, almost turned it upside down or inside out, and made all things new. That's the phrase I come back to over and over again. And just finally, I've absolutely no idea how long I've talked for because I forgot to put my watch on the table. But if it's too short, I could bore on for ages. I, oh no, I'm just about right, just gone over a little bit. Coming back to where I started, the church teaches us in worship to pray together. It doesn't teach us how to pray on our own. And we all have to find our own way of doing that. And I really wish that more Christians would go to their clergy, go to their ministers and say, because it's often true, I discover in private conversation, I don't know how to pray. Please, can you help me? Teach me how you do it. Because we don't share the rich resources of our common experience. All I've told you is how I've worked it out for myself. And I did it the way that most of us do, with books, with friends, with copying, with whatever I could see in images. I, I kneel because it feels right. I lift my hands to God because that feels right. I hold on to my rosary beads in my pocket because knowing that the crucified Christ is with me always gives me strength. What I want to urge us towards through Holy Week is integrated prayer, whole body prayer. We are not people who live inside our heads and one day will be freed from our bodies. We are people who are whole bodies. We pray with all of us. We imagine with all of us. We integrate the pain of Jesus Christ on the way to the cross with the pain of our own lives in our bereavements and in our anxieties and in our mistakes and guilt all of it wrapped up together. It seems to me that when we have walked the way of the cross through Holy Week, that's how we find our resurrection. Thank you. I want to pick you up about that, about prayer, and particularly mm. about imaginative prayer, yeah. which I think is, um, I came across it, um, and it was very strange to me, and felt um, almost not allowed. <laughs> yes, yes, the idea that I could bring imagination to prayer yeah. that just did feel you know very, very naughty and strange, yeah, and probably wrong, um, but I, I myself have found it enormously um, fruitful and liberating, yeah. though um, I, I still find it it 's quite dangerous, mm. I think. Mm. Um, could you say some more about yes, that? of course, um, and of course you 're quite right, it is dangerous <laughs> and risky because you 're always um, when you try to imagine scenes 
in stories in the Gospels. You're often picking up on little tiny details in the story. You know, like I said about the crowning with thorns, that the, the, all you get in the Gospel is that they made a crown and put it on his head and mocked him, which is bad enough. But when you, it's when you try to imagine how that must have been done. I can't kid myself that I know what the crown of thorns looked like or what plant it was made from, but I bet it hurt. I bet it, well, the point is, I bet it hurt to make it mm. as well. And that mm. is a point that comes through imagination mm. that leads us into truth. The problem with that comes when we start mistaking our imagination for the gospel. That's different. You often hear that at Christmas, I think, when you hear people preaching about the stable and you can see that, you know, um, infected by a thousand nativity plays, they've imagined oxen and asses and tinsel and uh, straw and dear little babies and cribs and stuff. And a lot of it is their imaginative detail rather than what they actually read in the gospel. But when, the, my point is that when you start to preach that as though it were the gospel, when you start to mistake your imagination, your prayer, your meditation for the truth of scripture, you're in deep trouble. So I think that what, what you're saying is right. It's a very characteristic, um, I was going to say, not, not quite Anglican, but general Protestant mm. kind of uh, mm. fear that opening mm. up prayer to the imagination might lead us away from scriptural truth. And yes, you have to take that risk. Mm. And that's why you keep coming back to reading the scriptures that talk about whatever it is you're praying on. And you start with them and you come back with them because in the end, it's about them and it's not all about you and how you feel. You pray these things imaginatively sometimes, I, I certainly find this for myself, to be liberated from your own thoughts and to enter into the world of other people. Mm. To remember that you're part of God's bigger picture rather than that everything God does is centered on you. That's, I think that's how it works. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Um, I'm, going to, in my, um, I'm going to ask you practicalities. Okay. How to do it. Okay. <laughs> do you want a demo? Oh, no. <laughs> I can show well, you exactly how I, I mean, do it, if this, you like. I mean, I, 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 when I, I was taught to do this mm. um, by a monk on retreat, and it was completely right. astonishing to me. And I could, if I hadn't had my spiritual hand held through the whole thing, I would just, oh, forget it. You know, this is, can't be. Okay, so. well, this is a bit scary because I might be about to be told that for 25 <laughs> years I've been doing it wrong, which would be very frightening. Okay, so imagine it's that my chair right. here, yeah. I won't move away, is my pew in chapel. And I come in, I, I often have problems with my left leg, so I have to wiggle myself about a bit, and I sometimes have to rest my foot on, on the kneeler. But basically, the important thing is to put your feet flat on the floor and to find somewhere comfortable for your back and someone to rest your hands. Um, obviously, I've got my rosary in this hand because I'm right-handed. And I usually hold on to the cross with this one all the time um, and then just keep moving my fingers around the beads and then until I get to the medal at the end. So I'm like this. I sit there like this. And most of the time... My eyes are shut. I know that the Greek Orthodox pray with their eyes open, but I just can't do it. I find it too distracting. I'm far too easily misled. And the first thing I think of, because I've been praying these prayers for a long time, I don't need the books open anymore. I know all the words, and I sit here. And when I'm, I always think of this bit as the warm-up, okay? Because these, these are the five groups of prayers as you go around. It takes about three minutes to say each one. Ten Hail Marys and an Our Father, but you can do it, as I say, with Kyrie Eleison and Our Father. And I start with the creed on this one, one Our Father, and I've got three warm-up beads to say three Hail Marys and Glory Be. Now, what do I do with these? I think about faith, hope, and love. And during that time, what's actually happening to me is I've stopped worrying about um, whether anybody's going to turn up, and I have to say, actually, it's silent prayer this morning, so don't expect me to say at the office. I've stopped worrying about uh, whether I've switched my mobile phone off. I'm gradually... I can feel my diaphragm lowering because my breathing is slowing down and my heart rate is slowing 
and I know that when I stop praying I'm going to feel cold because my body will be shutting down as I enter a different state of being and I need a little bit of time to do that which is what these warm-up beads are for and I pray my way through them until I get to the medal I know I'm ready to start saying uh, sorry on the previous bead I'm ready to start with the first of the three mysteries which in this case is Gethsemane and it always feels really hard I'll keep my eyes shut for a moment, if you don't mind, so that I can imagine how I do it as I tell you. Because I know I've got to walk into the garden and be there, and in my imagination, watch Jesus in an agony of mind. I remember that in one of the Gospel um, texts, which has now been deleted by those who think they know better and say that this is a late addition to the text, that it says his sweat was like great drops of blood upon the ground. And I try, although I can't, to imagine what it would be like to be praying so hard, to be in such an agony of indecision, or even an agony of decision. So there I am, I'm very, very still. I find praying with movement very distracting. I find it difficult to pray the rosary kneeling because, um, because it's too painful a posture to adopt for a long period of time. It takes about 12 to 15, depending how quick you are on the, off, on the Hail Marys, to say this. So I'm very, very peaceful and comfortable. I, I want to sit back, I want my shoulders to drop, I want my breathing to slow. And as I go around, I'm very conscious of where I am in the prayer. I know that the first two mysteries, I'll be thinking, oh, I've got another 10 minutes to go. Uh, because, you know, I'm not, I don't want to kid you, I'm not this great holy person who's always praying this in a good mood and wishing she was here. Quite often, prayer is just work. Orare es laborare, they used to write on the outside of churches. And then when you came out, on the other side it was written, laborare est orare. Uh, so that you remembered that work is prayer and prayer is work. And sometimes prayer is just work, that's all it feels like. But you go around in a spirit of faith that somehow God will talk to you. And often, not very often, but often he does. And I feel that point of contact with him that's nothing to do with my conscious mind, what I'm thinking, and which is nothing to do really with my imagination either. And it isn't even verbal. I think that the words often get in our way because we're trying to, to express things that we feel but have no words for. And we don't really need the words. Mm. All mm. we need is mm. to relax into that state of being where we're with God and he's with us. And so that's how I do it. But just to, to whiz around as if I'd got to the end and I'm back on the medal and I've said the three prayers that go there. Um, there's one to St. Mary, one to God about the rosary prayers um, that we... Um, O God, who by the life, death, and resurrection of thy Son, Jesus Christ, delivered and saved the world, grant that we, meditating on these mysteries of the most holy rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary, may both imitate what they contain and obtain what they promise. And lastly, a prayer to St. Michael, because St. Michael's Church is over the road from my college, and we used to have it as our chapel, so I think St. Michael deserves a prayer. When I get to the end of that, I know that my breathing is very slow and that I'm very, very, very relaxed, and I know that I have to open my eyes and get up, put my coat on, go and do all the jobs that go with Friday morning and go out of my chapel. And that's the really hard bit. Because having wanted through those first two mysteries to get on with it and go and get going on things, by the mm. time I get to number five, I'd rather stay here for the rest of the day or the week or the year because finally I found my peace with God. And I have to open my eyes and I do it very slowly. I sort of flicker them open so they get used to the light and a big breath in and up I get, coat on and go the job is done. That's what it feels like for me to pray the rosary, but for all I know, you'd all do it differently. I've never, ever in my life prayed the rosary with somebody else. For me, mm. it's a prayer of solitude mm. and privacy, just me and him.
So that's how I do it. Does that mm. help? Thank you. Thank you. Tell me I'm doing it wrong, <coughs> but tell me gently. <laughs> it would be a terrible you're shock. Absolutely not doing it wrong. <laughs> Good. Um, but you're not doing it the only way. No, there are other ways. There are other ways as yeah. well. I mean, <coughs> for instance, if I pray the rosary, I, I use the Jesus prayer, which right. feels more I should have said that's another good one. to me in the Ave yeah. Maria for yeah. some reason, which is um, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yeah. Um, and it has quite a breathing rate. I think that's one of the reasons it works so well for me and it works with it. Mm. And I mean, for me, the rosary is more or less a timing yeah. thing. It's really about... It's really it makes you give the right amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's about taking off that kind of clutter of the top layer of your head thinking, is there anything in the fridge? You know, should I, uh, should I turn the iron off? You know, yes. it just kind of takes away that clutter. Yeah, so perfect. that was my question. And now, um, do people want to ask things? Yes. I don't think he was a very long way up, and I'll tell you why I think that, because the Romans are incredibly practical people and the soldiers are also engineers. And the taller you make the cross, the wobblier it is and the harder it is to keep it upright. The point of crucifixion is indeed to make it visible to everybody. Um, you remember the story of Spartacus and how the, the rebels in his revolt are crucified all the way, I think it's the Via Appia, all the way down the, the road that leads to Rome. Um, they're meant to be a visible signal of the power of Rome. Uh, and so, to be honest, the two things that would have made it unlikely, you know, just from first principles unlikely, that the cross was a long way up there, are um, that it would have been a wo very wobbly to make it that high with the centre of gravity, and the other thing would be it's a waste of wood. And the Romans are that practical. Um, they wouldn't have wasted the wood on it. So, so, no, I think you're absolutely right. It would have been almost eye level. So this would have been an impact which would have been much greater in reality than many people envisage. Yes. I think we also have to remember that our images of the crucifixion are often driven by paintings and statues. And in that case, what drives the shape of the painting is often the building it's set in. So if the building requires something that's this shape, then the crucifixion has to be this shape. You see the same sort of thing happening um, in Greek temples. You think of something like the Parthenon frieze, if you've been to the British Museum that although the figures at the, at the centre can be standing up or nearly, the figures at the edge have always got to be reclining like this to fit <laughs> in that triangle shape. And the same is true of the crucifixion. If you've got a tall window, you need to fill it up with Christ at the top because at the top means the most important and everybody else down below. Sometimes in um, pre-Renaissance depictions, you'll see that Jesus is bigger than other people or that uh, Mary, if she's seated on the throne with the infant Christ, she's bigger than everybody else because big means important. So I think our religious, our imagery and when we pray is often driven by paintings, which can be, as you say, quite misleading. Yeah. This is indeed why imagery, such imagery, is becoming more and more important in theological teaching. Mm -hmm. only yeah, I think you're right. I'm sure you're right. So thank you. I'm so delighted that you say that, and not just because it means I've got one sale for the book I'm writing at the moment. I have really struggled with the glorious mysteries, I honestly have. Um, but I'm getting there, and I think that the point that I'm trying to get to, which is really what you're pointing at as well, uh, is, is back to the meaning of the cross and what this at-one-ment, this atonement means. Because we have to remember that for the first Christians, um, they hadn't read the theology, they hadn't had the teaching, they didn't even know that the atonement existed, and they didn't have a word for it 
for a long time. They talked about ransom or redemption or salvation, which are all metaphors. You know, you ransom something, you pay a fee to get a hostage back. If you redeem something, you go to a pawnbroker and you pay a fee to get it back. If somebody is saved, the biblical word salvation means safe, safety and health and well-being. It means you're, you're kept whole instead of damaged. So God rescues us. All those kind of images are the things that they started with, and it took a long time to work their way to atonement. Um, but the point that you're reminding us of is that actually what they start with is the resurrection. Because lots of prophets die. Many people, we heard it this morning in the Gospel, the man's a prophet, said the blind man. Um, lots of people get killed for witnessing to God and to the truth that God wills for us. At the time when Jesus is crucified, there was no good reason for all of them to understand what it was that we now recognise. They didn't know. At the point of the crucifixion, they didn't know the resurrection was going to happen. He had spelt it out for them, but it's a bit like telling your kids to tidy their bedrooms. You have to do it over and over and over again. It still doesn't go in. Um, because they didn't understand. They didn't understand what the three days and I shall rise was all about. Well, it's quite unlikely, isn't it? Highly unlikely. I mean, I think, yeah. I think the mistake that we, we often <laughs> yeah. make again is thinking that in those days, back in you know, olden times, people were more stupid than we were. They were more credulous than we were. We're all very cynical and worldly wise, but they didn't expect dead bodies to come back to life any more than we do. There was no expectation that that would happen. And the resurrection was the miracle of miracles that started it all. And it was that that made people ask, who was Jesus? If I can just go sideways on for a moment, I read a very powerful novel a couple of years ago called Robert Ellesmere by Mrs. Humphrey Ward. It's the story of a clergyman who loses his faith as a result of the 19th century literary critical movement, you know, the one that stopped people reading the Bible as though it was written by the hand of God and it was all pure history. It was all a bit driven by Darwin, but other things as well. And how people realised that gradually the Bible had come together as a series of documents over centuries. And uh, influenced partly by this, and she went off and read some of the stuff, Mrs. Humphrey Ward wrote about this clergyman called Robert Ellesmere who lost his faith because he suddenly realised, as he thought, that Jesus was just a very, very good man who suffered. And the bit that really stuck from this extraordinary book, um, and it's not very popular now for obvious reasons, you have to give a toss about the church, and lots of people don't. Um, the bit that really stuck for me was the story of how the less he came to believe in Jesus' identity as God incarnate, the more emphasis he put on the human suffering of the man Jesus. He, he reduced his congregations to tears, she said, as he went through, you know, those things I talked about, the, the nailed hands, and the, the parched lips. And he focused on this and reduced his congregation to tears because human suffering was all that he could see in Jesus. And at the point that the, um, the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary end, the passionate Christianity stuff, that's all there is. There is no resurrection yet. And we're still waiting for that moment of hope. But actually, unlike the stories, that the meditations in this book, Christianity, our story as Christians, begins with the resurrection. So you're absolutely right. I've got to get on with that writing. The deadline is looming. So pray for me, brothers and sisters. <laughs> I've got a mystery and a half to go. No, no, there's no such crime as blasphemy in, in that sense. You could, you could dishonour the gods, but it wouldn't be the god of the Jews. You have to understand, as I'm sh it sounds like you do actually, this, the context of the, Jew the Roman occupation 
and particularly in Jerusalem, that, that the Romans um, expect people as a sign of loyalty to the empire when they conquer a, a, a land, a nation. They expect uh, people to, sac to be willing to offer sacrifice to the gods for the emperor's well-being. They often say, it's often described as sacrificing to the emperor as though you were worshipping him, but mostly you ask the gods to bless the emperor and you make a sacrifice. In other words, you ritually slaughter an animal uh, with a particular um, rites and ceremonies. Um, and the Romans didn't make the Jews do that, nor did they enter their holy place. They, they respected the Jewish temple, which is a highly unusual move until the destruction in AD 70. And they did that because they recognised Jewish religion as authentic. It wasn't their religion, but they recognised it as authentic. So when Jesus... This is all very mysterious and nobody knows the details, and it's the sort of thing that scholars write big fat books about that nobody else reads. Um, or sometimes people like me consult it when we want a bit of detail, and we, you know, we look at page 23 and leave all other 630 pages unread. <laughs> Lots of the books on my shelf are like that. Um, but what, what seems to have happened, as far as I understand it, um, is that the Jewish authorities wanted to put him to death for blasphemy, and the, the sentence for blasphemy is stoning. It took me a long time to realise why, but in, in Judaism, if you uh, commit a sin like blasphemy, you become what they call unclean, in the same way that you can touch things and become unclean, or do certain things, you know, touching a dead body would render you unclean. And nobody would want to touch the person they were going to execute, so how do you execute somebody without touching them? And the answer is you stone them. So that is what Jesus probably thought he was facing if the Jewish authorities got their way. That's perfectly normal. But what the Romans execute him for, I think, is insurrection. He said he was the king of the Jews. Um, that's the key. That's why he was executed, just like Spartacus, revolt. You have to remember that violence is endemic in, ancient, in the ancient cities. Um, people write books about that as well. It's, a, it's not something that they regarded as unusual because when, you know, when the Romans legislate... Um, for behaviour in cities, one of the things they're particularly preoccupied is, with is not having groups of too many people together. It's one of the first things they're suspicious of the Christians for, because Christians get together and they, they do something together and it's all very mysterious and they won't tell us what they're up to. And the Romans are very disturbed about that. Some of our earliest evidence for Christianity, you know the letters of Pliny to, Tra Pliny to Trajan, the Emperor Trajan in Bithynia. Um, Pliny is a governor in Bithynia and he has writes some letters back to Trajan in the early decades of the second century saying we've got these Christians meeting together I don't know what to do about it um, and they, you know, they won't do what we expect them to and sacrifice for the emperor's well-being and of course the um, ones who are slaves he writes back you can torture them to find out what they're up to I don't think, as I say, the Romans would punish people in law for dishonouring the gods but they wouldn't have been thinking about the god of the Jews because it wasn't one of their gods. Gods live in places in the ancient world, as you know. So um, the god of the Jews lives in Judea, and Jupiter Capitolinus lives in Rome, um, and that's who you honour where you are. So um, the honest answer is, I don't know, but I'd be surprised if they did. I mean, the fact that we don't have a record of it doesn't mean they didn't do it, but I don't know. I don't try to, but I often find it happens. Um, because when you're trying to imagine people, you have to imagine things like their clothing and their faces. And if you're not a very imaginative person naturally, you have to draw on other people's. So yes, I do is the short answer to that. But mostly, no, I don't. I mean, the most extraordinary experience I've ever had of praying the rosary, I wasn't 
imagining something that I'd ever seen, and I've never seen a painting that does it. But I had a, it's very difficult to describe, but a sort of mystical experience where I was praying the joyful mysteries and I'd got to the Annunciation, to which coincidentally my college is dedicated. So it's something I, I, did, I devote a lot of time to in prayer now. And I tried to imagine myself in the scene, and I, don't ask me why, but I imagined Mary weaving and I was the piece of cloth that she wove. Um, and while I was there, in the scene, totally inert and not interacting in any way with what was happening, um, I can still sort of see that the lights and the movement and the noise that happened at the appearance of the angel at the Annunciation. And I've never seen that depicted. And I've never had that experience again either, which was really annoying because it was enough to keep me going for about 10 years um, <laughs> because I became the cloth that the baby was wrapped in at the nativity and so on. Um, and I don't know where the idea came from, but there it was. Now, an experience like that seems to me to come out of nowhere, and I'm very grateful to, to God for that. But, but mostly, uh, as I say, work is prayer and prayer is work, and, and uh, I'll take any shortcuts I can, including other people's descriptions and other people's ideas of what it must have been like, and paintings and pictures and poetry. I mean, is that what you find too? Yeah. Uh, particularly paintings or...? Yeah. Is there one in particular, sorry to press you, but I am interested, is there one in particular that you found helpful? The one for Rembrandt, the Prophet's son. Yes, mm. He's, his hands mm. are up like this, yes. Mm. I know it, and all the light seems to be coming out of the middle. Mm. Um, it's a painting, um, a picture of that was given by Bishop Leslie Brown, who was um, a bishop who became an honorary fellow of Downing College. He gave a picture of that to Ben Britton when Ben was struggling to, fin he told me about this just before he died. Ben was struggling to finish the prodigal son, and that was the f the focus of that painting, was what enabled Britain to finish his opera. So, so Bishop Leslie told me, and he knew um, Ben and Peter very well. So, whenever I look at that, I think, Gosh, I know somebody who knew somebody. Who <laughs> knew, but how vain am I? <laughs> but, but it was—it's a wonderful story, and I'm grateful for it. So yeah, it's, it moves a lot of people. That painting, I think. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Kelly. You that was much. fantastic. And um, I hope you will. <laughs> Thank you very much.